finish the book of Numbers. So you're going to get your little happy face tonight. I'll stand outside with stickers. No, I don't have stickers. But congratulations for uh, hanging in there. How many of you have been through the whole series this year? We've been in the whole series. So most of you here in this room, we've gone through the whole book of Numbers here on Wednesday night beginning in January this year. So tonight we finish, and uh, I've entitled tonight's message, Family Inheritance in the Promised Land. So let's ask God's blessing, and then we'll get right into the word tonight. Father, we come to you with the needs of our family, these that you have spared and, and blessed, those that, Lord, are still struggling with, with difficulties, JC with prostate cancer, and uh, Carol with kidney failure. Lord, and there's others that I just don't want to name names, but there's others that are in desperate need of your touch in our fellowship. They're our family, Lord. They're your children, and we pray for you to intervene. I pray for my grandson, Lincoln. Without your intervention, Lord, without your intervention, Lord, he won't make it. And so we ask, God, that you would intervene in his life just as we ask for each and every one of these precious people in our fellowship. We ask you for breakthrough. We ask you for to show your power and your miracle work in their life. And Lord, as Job said, even though you slay us, we will worship you. Through hardships and difficulties, we will worship you. Strengthen those family members, Lord. My daughter-in-law, Yvonne, bless her, Lord. Strengthen her. But thank you, God. You've given us life today. You've given us the opportunity to, to come before you and, and read your word. And so we ask that you would pour into our lives. Thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for this Old Testament history, as well as your provision, your miraculous work in this people's lives, the Jews, the Hebrews, the children of Israel. So Lord, as we finish tonight, Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for this wonderful book. Open it to us now. Reveal its truth to us. Help us to apply your word to our lives tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we have the uh, family inheritance in the promised land, and I'm going to look one more time because this is not going off, is it? No. Are you good? <laughs> I'm trying to be, for some reason it's just bothering me now. That should do it. Okay, so remember now that in this book that we've been looking at uh, for such a long time, again, for the past nine months or so, these last chapters of this book uh, are really all about God preparing his people to enter into the land. I subtitled the book, Learning to Trust in God, because you have this new people that have been drawn out of 400 years of slavery. They've been delivered by God's chosen deliverer, Moses, the man that intercedes between God and man, Moses, who is a great picture or type of, of Christ. And Moses has obeyed God. He's walked before God. He's been a great mediator for, between God and man. But the people have been very obstinate, very 
the book could be titled the book of murmurings instead of the book of numbers. It begins with numbers, numbering the people that have, have exited from their bondage, some two and a half million. And then it ends with numbering, how many are left after the many, many years of wandering, the generation that had died, gone, died, and then the new generation going in. The numbers are close, but there's not as many as there were. There's still two and a half million, but, but maybe they've lost a few thousand. They should have. They should have gained people. God said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And he blessed them and he said, I, I, I'm gonna bless you and you're gonna be blessing to the world. And they should have doubled or tripled their number in those 40 years, but they didn't because of their disobedience, because they're whining, their stubbornness, their unfaithfulness. So God in these 40 years has been teaching and training these people to trust him. That's why I subtitle it, Learning to Trust in God. Now, the last time we were here in chapter 35 last week, God had ordered Moses to prepare two unique cities. One city was for the Levites. The Levites were the only tribe of the 12 that were not to inherit land. The other 11 tribes were going to be given land. Two and a half tribes, remember, are staying outside or east of the Jordan. The other nine and a half tribes are going to go in, and each tribe is going to be given an inheritance. And this is where God says, I want you to go in, and I want you to occupy, and I want you to take charge of the land that I've given you, just as you and I as Christians are to occupy the salvation God's given us. We're supposed to live like promised land people. You ever thought about that before? Because often we live like, you know, the, the news cycle. It's only bad news, right? It's bad news. And we get bummed out about the news. And, or we live under the pressure of, of a, a job or a, a strenuous relationship or marriage. Or we live under these conditions. Rather than live like faithful God, promised land people. God wants us to live with that attitude, with that heart. The Christian life is an abundant life, but it's to be gripped and, and taken hold of, just as these people were told to go into the land and possess it. You and I as believers are to take our salvation and live it out. And by the way, the 40 days of life began today. Remember I presented the 40 days for life, a uh, peaceful demonstration of Christians all over the nation and even the world with their little sign praying for abortion, to go away, to be eradicated. And today began the first, uh, at six o'clock, Tim Adams, who's the representative for the local area. I called him today. He was on the line. It was about 9.30 this morning. And I, I said, how's it going? And I was just anxious to hear because I had to come and study and prepare. And he said, oh, Pastor Lee, it's awesome. We saved two babies at by 9.30 this morning. We have two women that had come to Planned Parenthood and they said, he said, you don't have to do this. And there were several of them praying and they led them from the Planned Parenthood sidewalk right to the Pregnancy Counseling Center where those women will get resources and help. Two lives were saved. And I believe that more will be saved, not only here, but we'll hear that story all over the nation. That's what 40 Days for Life is all about. I'm excited about that. Possessing the land living like a promised land person. That's really what these people are learning. They, they were failures. They were whiners. They were complainers. 
They weren't walking by faith, they were walking by sight. And when the spies went into the land, they were freaked out. Giants, they'll eat us like grasshoppers, remember? But God wants them to go in and possess the land. He wants them to trust him alone. He delivered them with, a, with these 10 wonderful miracles from the bondage of Egypt. They were all miraculous. We stand back and read them and go, wow, what a powerful God. And yet, even with the parting of the Red Sea and the whole two and a half million going through on dry land, looking back and seeing the approaching armies of Egypt get demolished by the, the crashing waves, they still are complaining and unfaithful and have had to go through all of these years to learn. Now, the two cities, going back to chapter 35, one was for the Levites because they don't have any land. The other was the cities of refuge, a safe place for those that were in different locations throughout the whole nation of Israel where you could get to the city of refuge within one day's journey if you accidentally murdered someone. And so those were the two cities that we looked at. Tonight we're going to look at uh, a story in the end here that goes back a few chapters to a man who had daughters. He had five daughters. And when the land was being distributed to all the sons and their names, these five daughters said, wait, what about us? We don't have a brother. We don't have husbands. We don't have any men. We're just women. They were Zelophead's daughters. You remember they were back in chapter 37. I mean, chapter 27. And so Zelophehad's daughters were complaining to Moses. And Moses said, well, I don't know what to do. So he, remember, he goes and prays and asks God. And God says, well, here, you, you know, that's not right. They're going to get an inheritance. These women will get an inheritance. Now, tonight, this family is brought up again here at the end of the story. There's a reason for that. But notice here in verses 1 through 4, we have Zelophehad's daughters again. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near, and they spoke before Moses and before the leaders of the chief fathers of the children of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance to our brother, Zelophead to his daughters. Now, here's the problem. If they're married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, Zelophead's in, in, in this tribe, and they'll be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they marry. So it will be taken from us, this lot, this fair inheritance, the land that you had given us, and then they notice, verse 4, when the Jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then the inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribes of our fathers. So you can see the dilemma here. It's, it's fairly easy to see when you read it. I, again, when we go through the Bible and we read it cursorily, which I would encourage you to do, there's sometimes you read the Bible just to read it, and, the, and God speaks to you. There's other times you read to study it. Sometimes you read to find answers to a question you have or an issue. There's different ways to read the Bible. In, in this case, we're going verse by verse on our, 
Wednesday night study. So we're looking deeply at this. We're trying to find the meaning of it and then to apply it. There's one meaning. There's only one interpretation, many applications. People get that mixed up all the time. They, they say, well, that's what you see. Or that's what, well, you might have a different application, but there's only one interpretation. There's only one truth. And so we're discovering the truth, and then I'm giving application as your pastor, as the Spirit leads. That's kind of the way it works. If you were at Frank's church, he might have a slightly different uh, application. If you go to another fellowship, they might have a different application. But it's one interpretation here. And these verses here, there's a problem. Here's the problem. The, the, the female tribal uh, uh, inheritors here of the land, and they go all the way back to chapter 27. We won't go there tonight. I'll just mention Zelophead there. The, these tribal leaders were thinking about these women that have been given land, and when they get married to someone in a different tribe, then the land is going to go with, to this other area. And so this piece of land that was for um, these tribes would be divided up and parsed, and it, and it would go away finally. And they're saying, well, that's not fair. We're supposed to have this inheritance forever and forever. That's what you promised. So that's their complaint there. The five daughters in chapter 27, they had the courage to come and ask Moses, this isn't fair. And it's, it's a really interesting picture of these women that went by faith and they asked for something that they were promised. They, be, they remembered the promise, and they stood on the promise, and they reminded the leader of that truth. And so Moses was like, uh, gee, I'm really not sure what to do here, as you recall. And he goes to God, prays, and God says, no, Moses, they should get land too. And so Moses comes back and says, no, you're going to get land. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great, another story, direct God directing Moses after he makes his request. But the question here in verse 3 from the tribe of Manasseh was, what if the daughters married into other tribes? In other words, if the land was given to the daughters, then when the daughters married the sons of Manasseh, the land would be lost to their husband's tribe, and eventually it would just kind of go away. That's the problem here. How then do you keep the tribes from, to keep their property through generation to generation when they marry in different tribes? That's the is issue here. And then that jubilee, the, the mention of the jubilee, this is important. I don't know, it's found in Leviticus, but throughout the Bible, it was taught all the way back at Mount Sinai, the, the truth of the jubilee. The children of Israel come, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe. So the land's going to, during the jubilee, it's, gonna, it's not going to go back to the family, it's going to go to this other tribe. That was their question. Now, every 50 years in Israel, even today, there's a year of jubilee. You can look it up and maybe make a notation in Leviticus chapter 25. The word jubilee is teruah, and it actually means the blowing of the ram's horns. And on the yearly day of atonement, but the 50th year was the year of jubilee. And the year of jubilee was important because way back in uh, in, uh, at Mount Sinai, God gives the specific instructions about every 50 years. He tells his people that they are to, he starts, he says, okay, for six years you're going to grow and you're, you're going to harvest and the land's going to yield and you're going to eat food and you're going to be well off. I'm going to provide. But the seventh year, I want you to let the land go. Do not harvest, do not grow, do not 
a plant or anything. You, I, I want you to leave that land totally fallow, which would do what? If you're an ecologist, you understand that the, the land, the dirt would replenish and have nutrients and grow strong, better uh, yield. There'd be a better yield. But if you never gave it a rest, then there's a problem. So God has this law that you have to give the land a rest every seventh year. Let me show you this in Leviticus 25. But the seventh year shall be a Sabbath rest for the land. Whoops, there it is. Uh, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. So again, the people grew food, they harvested for six years, and then the seventh year, there was two things going on. Number one, the land's going to replenish. Number two, where are the people going to get their food? They have to trust somebody for their food. Who do they have to trust? God. So this would cause the people every seven years to say, okay, Lord, we're going to obey you, and we're going to trust that you're going to provide all that we need for a full year. See how God puts us in a place where we have to look to him? Have you ever been there before, by the way? Where God's put you in a place in your life where you have to go, I can't go left, I can't go right, I'm boxed in. And then you finally realize as a Christian, Father, you've put me in this place purposely. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to stay right here. Or you can look left and right and jump, jump the rails, jump the trail. It's never a good plan for a believer to, to get off God's plan. It's always better to stay on the plan. So he's, God says, for your good, I want you to do that. I want you to every seven years let everything go back to, to its natural state, let the soil replenish, and you guys, I want you to trust me. Well, Israel didn't do that, as you remember. They, they didn't do that. And God took those every seventh year over a long period of time. He added them up. And then that's why God takes his people captive, into Babylon. Babylon captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, was part of God's plan to discipline his people. How long were they in Babylon? 70 years. Because these, the seventh year at the, at the cycle was never honored by the people. And so God put him in captivity in Babylon as a result of their disobedience. According to 2 Chronicles 36, and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. God has Sabbaths for people. God has Sabbaths for his land. And he says, as long as she lays desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. So God takes his people to captivity, gets them out of the land. So his land the land, without the people of Israel on it growing, can have its Sabbath. God always gets his way. God is in control. We either follow his plan or he disciplines us. There, that's, there's no doubt about that. It happened then. It happens today in our life. Even though we're born again and we're under grace and God loves us, God still chastens who he loves. And if you find yourself in a place of chastening, the best thing is not to say why, but it's to say, Lord, I, I'm learning. I love you, and I receive every moment of this punishment you brought into my life. Because there's going to be a year of jubilee. There's going to be release. There's going to be the mountaintop experience again. The Christian life is like that. It's not you get born again, and you're on the mountaintop for the whole life. I don't know anyone that's been like that. Never. 
But you go up and down and up and down, you know, in the Christian life. But you keep your eyes on Jesus. Paul knew how to abase. Paul knew how to abound, remember? But he always kept in, I can do all things through what? Who strengthens me. That's the goal for you as believers. To understand we're going to go up and down, difficult things. These people disobeyed, so God took them into captivity. But interestingly, the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, God gave an opportunity for his people to start all over again. It's a beautiful, beautiful principle. It helped prevent, listen, it helped prevent the greedy, those people that were probably really sharp and could make a deal with their neighbor and get a little more piece of their land every month and I'll grow a little bit and give you a little bit. And pretty soon they would overtake their neighbors and, and they became land grabbers and they owned a lot of property. But at the end of 50 years, guess what? The family went back, all the property went back to those families because God did not want anybody to be a warlord. He didn't want everybody to have all this land. He wanted fair and just, our God is in every way. And he wants us to be fair and just with the way we treat others as well. So on the 50th year, all debts were forgiven. All the land went back to the original tribal or family ownership. The problem was, in this case, in this last chapter here, what about marrying outside of the tribe? That's the question here. So God issues a command to deal with that issue. I'm calling it here, keeping the land in the family. Notice verse 5, Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry all only within the family of their father's tribe. So the inheritance, here's the reason why, of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe so that the children of Israel each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus, no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. So basically here, if these gals want to marry, God says you can marry whoever you want. But if you marry outside the tribe, no land. It gets exchanged here. But if you obey me and if you marry within the tribe, now remember, this isn't like marrying your first cousin in Kentucky. There are 600,000 people in some of these tribes. So these families are wide-ranging and diverse. And remember, they were living in close proximity as they encamped around the tabernacle. So it was like these big cities with half a million people in them all around the tabernacle. I mean, we're talking a big, big group of people. So we're not talking about marrying your first cousin, you know, and having fungy teeth and, you know, hillbilly stuff going on. It's, it, that's not at all what's happening here. But they could choose who they wanted to marry. They just had to marry within, within their tribe, within their family. In fact, I love that thought. 
You know, sometimes we think we have to have more than one child to be a tribe, but if you, have, if you are a husband and wife, you're a tribe. You're a tribe, you're a family. It's pretty cool. I've had people ask about that because we have five children. A, a, a close, not, well, not a close, but a, a pastor that came from this fellowship, uh, Chris Swanson, we were talking about him the other night. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in, in Philadelphia. And he went to this church uh, 28 years ago and I did ministry with him and, and he ended up pastoring a church in Moscow, one of the second churches there in Moscow way back when Chuck Smith sent all the Calvary guys over there. And I haven't stayed in touch with Chris, although I emailed him within the last 12 months just to say, how are things going? Chris and Lori have 11 children. They love the Lord. Their church is large. Their family's big. And they're just serving God. They're tribe. You don't have to have 11 to have, to have a tribe. You don't have to have five like we have five to have a tribe. Edward knows what a tribe is. I know what a tribe is. It's a wonderful thing. It's hard. Not easy. But, but God allows us to have these children and, and this tribe, I just love that idea of tribe, but family, inheritance, passing on from one generation to the other. And then you have the year of Jubilee, so that every 50 years, the fam- all, the, all the land comes back to the original owners. All the debt has been excused, and we all get this restart together. Everybody restarts together at an equal place. It's a beautiful, beautiful principle. God knows exactly what's best for his people. But here's the complication for believers today. And let me just make some application. Remember, one interpretation, many applications. Family heritage. Here's my point, and I'll throw it up here on the screen. Family heritage. What does it mean? What does it mean to be you? I'm a co So what is it to be a co? What does that mean to my son, Eric, or my daughter, Ashley, Philip, Daniel, Kevin? What does it mean to be a co? The father and the mother are to pass on the most important things to their children to give them meaning and an inheritance, a heritage, a family heritage. We've talked about this, my wife and I've talked about this over and over, especially when the kids were really younger. What does it mean to be a, a co? I mean, when somebody looks at your life, what, what, what is it going to sum up to be? Do people know you on your job as a family man or a family woman, or do they know you as a hard-working you know, bomb-dropping, hardcore, do-whatever-it-takes-to-get-the-job-done person? What, how do people see you? What, what do people know about your name? What does it mean to be you? What are the priorities or goals in your life? What are the most important things to you? Because, listen, when you're dead, when you're gone, your family's going to look back at what, you, what legacy you left them and what legacy will that be? <clears throat> I am so grateful for my wife and her love for Jesus Christ because we've determined in our life from a very young age that it wasn't 
going to be money that we pushed our kids to. It's not about education. It's never been education as an important. We want our kids to know and love Jesus Christ. Because when we're gone and our kids have a job and they have a 401k and a marriage that's upside down and finances when the world falls apart, all those things will mean nothing. But knowing Christ and having the peace of God that's a godly heritage. That's a family heritage. That's a tribal name. What does it mean to be you? What's important in your life? Again, I just want my kids to know the Lord and experience the joy of just following Christ, the blessings of walking with Jesus Christ every day. If you're a parent today of one or even more children, or you were a parent at any time, where have you led your children? Have you led them closer to Jesus Christ? Or have you led them in a pursuit for a job? You gotta get a good job. You gotta go to get an education. More, more education will give you more money, more money. Because if that's your pursuit, you'll come face to face with the words of Jesus who said, what is your soul worth if you gain the whole world and lose your what? Whole soul. What? As Jesus said, that, what, what's your, what, are you, what are you about as a Christian? What are you about? Our godly heritage is our children's inheritance. And I want my kids to know and love and serve Jesus Christ. Because in the end, that's all that matters. You can't take any of this stuff with you can't take it so parents remember that I thought about that and I hear I thought about this too today as I'm studying I thought about the year of jubilee and how it would relate to that <clears throat> and I, I came face to face and it brings emotion to my heart right now but I came face to face with some family members and we were on a vacation hunting vacation with our good friends Carol and in uh, Barrie a few years ago. And we went to see some family members of mine that I had lost touch with, but on Facebook, of all places. And this family, <clears throat> who were Mennonites and loved Jesus Christ with all their heart, mind, and soul, had been praying for this Hooli family. That's, that's my, my mother's maiden name is Hooli, believe it or not. Hooli, Hooli, Hooli. She came to this church and she was sitting right back here about five years ago. She died at 100 years old in 2013. She was born in, in 1913, my, my Nani Huli. Um, but her family, her husband, and that side of the family were all these people that had walked away from God. And these, this family member was praying and they heard about a pastor in Southern California and so I got in touch with them and we went and had dinner with them and Barry Carroll remember, sweetest family, they love the Lord. We sat around a big table and we talked about God and his providence and his, we're so grateful to him and it, it, was, it was so kind of wonderful and unique because to hear their story, we've been praying for years for that family because we thought they were lost. And then 50 years later, I can't, pinpoint it 50 years, but I'm just applying it to our, the year of Jubilee. I believe the year of Jubilee happens in our lives. That God never lets up 
He never lets a family, a tribe go to waste. You have value, you have a purpose, God has a plan for you. Year of Jubilee, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All I know is when I was 13 years old, I, I felt the, the presence of, of guilt and I came to Christ and I, my life has never been the same. It's, never, it's not easy to be a Christian, but it's never been the same. So the year of Jubilee and God's fairness to the family and these tribes, keeping everything together. Now go back to Numbers 36 here. And go back to the, the exposition of the word here where these women, they've been given this command now by God. So you, you, what did the daughters of Zelophehad have to do now? They have to obey God and marry within their tribe. That's my next point here. Notice verse 10. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. There it is. They did obediently exactly what God called them to do. There's no complaining. There's no whining. Oh, Lord, that guy's really cute from that other tribe. I want him. The word of God says it. I'll obey it. The daughters of Zelophehad, they're very, very, a, a great picture, a great example of obedient followers of God for, notice their names, we even have their names. You don't get a lot of women names in the Bible, so this is important. You have Mala, Terza, Hagla, Milka, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad. They're even mentioned in the scripture because they were obedient to the word of God. God gave them the word and they were obedient. They were married, notice verse 12, into the families of the children of Manasseh, and the son of Joseph. Remember, that's how we started this chapter. That was their complaint. The sons of Manasseh and Joseph were, wait, they're going to get married outside the tribe. We'll lose our land. But they didn't do that. They married into the families of the children of Manasseh and Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. Not only did they marry within the tribe of their father's family, they went even one step further. They married their cousins. They married their close relatives purposefully, because they wanted to be obedient to God. Christian, do you live your life like that? Do you live your life so obediently that, that there's no reproach from your neighbor or your relative? And people go, wow, he's really, she's really obedient. Look at that family, how they serve the Lord. I love this example, this beautiful family here, Zelophead and his daughters, who were obedient to the Lord. Here's another way to apply the scripture again in our lives, this portion of the text that we're looking at tonight. None of us really belong to a, a tribe. I, we do, we have a family. I use that word loosely, but not like the children of Israel here. But we as born-again Christians, and that's really the only kind of Christian there is. I could say born-again or Christian, but born-again Christians, I think, kind of emphasizes, maybe even overemphasize the fact that there's only one kind of Christian, the kind that's born-again, the kind that's regenerated, but we belong to one family. It's God's family, and God has divided. When he looks at the human condition right now from heaven, there's two divisions as all that he sees, there's believers and there's what? Unbelievers. It's that simple. And God gives us specific commands among the tribes, among the tribes of the believers, those of you and I that have come to Christ. 
Paul the Apostle writes one of those very important laws that, re that really relate to Zelophia, the daughters and their obedience to Mary within the tribes. Here it is behind me on the screen, 2 Corinthians. He says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There's the, there's the law for you and I. There's the application. Do not become unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then the, the reasoning Paul gives, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness? The main principle, there's many applications here, but the main is that if you're a young person and you're not married tonight, you are not to seek being married to a non-believer. I've seen it happen. I counsel against it. It's happened and it's always been a disaster. If you're a Christian, don't marry outside the tribe. That's, that's the law because you'll have a problem. There'll be two opposing worldviews. There's going to be strife and struggle in that relationship. And I'm sure there are some today that are even in this fellowship that will tell you that before they came to Christ, they married this man or this woman and they got saved. Their life changed radically, but their husband, their wife didn't change. And now there's tension and struggle. And the word of God, especially here in 2 Corinthians, will tell you as a, an unequally yoked believer not to seek divorce. Do not seek divorce. If you're a Christian married to a non-Christian, you are to minister, to love unconditionally, and be a witness for God in that home. A divorce is not an option. Never. It's never an option. God hates it, Micah. He hates it. But the law here, don't be unequally yoked together. And you could, you could take that and apply it to other things, like you're a small business owner, and you have this opportunity. There's an investor who wants to come alongside, and man, there, there's money to be made, and, and you need capital. And so you, as a believer, join yourself with a non-believer, and you've got a problem because you've chosen to disobey this law. So don't expect God to make it right after you've disobeyed his law. You've, you've purposely yoked yourself with an unbeliever. You have to be careful. Now, there's sometimes that, that, like, if you're working at a large corporation, how do you change, or, or the federal government or a county agency, you know, and you, you go, Pastor Lee, I go to work with a bunch of non-believers all day. My boss is a non-believer, uh, and the people all around me, they don't believe in Christ, and I got to work with them. Well, that's part of who we are. God wants us in the world, but not of the world. So that we, we but you're not to make a, a, a choice to, to join your finances or join your marriage or do those kind of things with an unbeliever. It's very clear in the scriptures. So how do you know? What do you watch for? Well, you, are, do they go to church? Do they love the Lord? Do they, if you're a, a young person tonight, if you want to be married and you're looking for, we have some young people in our church and I'm sure all of us can give advice, but I would, I love the fact that my first three uh, children are married to uh, women that they found right here in this, didn't find, but God brought them right here in this church. They watched each other, they read the Bible together, they worshiped the Lord together, they, they heard the same teaching from Pastor John Miller and worshiped under their dad. And as they grew up together, they, they married and, and they all have families and they love the Lord. 
If you want to find a mate, it's not marriage.com or whatever. And that happens a lot, and I'm, I, I mean, I can only say that's just kind of part of it, but if you really want to marry a godly man or woman, then you need to wait for the Lord to bring that person into your life. Don't settle for second best, and then watch that individual. Do they read the word? Do they worship Jesus? Do they, they talk about the Lord and do ministry? If that's what you want for your life, you'll find it in God's church. I just love the fact that we have this example of Zelophia's daughters here. They wanted the best for their lives. They wanted the best for their tribe. So they stayed within. They, o- they obeyed God, and God blessed them. And I believe God will bless each and every one of us who obey his word. I hope that throughout our study, as we've done this study, I hope God has opened up things and taught you many things. Because think about these people. They're on the east side of the Jordan. They can see in the distance Jericho. They're right on the doorstep. They're right on the threshold. In fact, that's my last point here as we read this last verse. On the threshold of the land, these are the commandments of, and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. The book began... Numbers chapter 1 in the wilderness. The book ends in Numbers chapter 36 in the wilderness. They haven't gone across the Jordan. But they're so close. They're right on the doorstep. And Moses reports right here in this last verse. They're in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. They're standing right inside of the promised land. They can see it now. God has led them from the bondage in Egypt and Pharaoh. He's taken them out of slavery. He took them to Mount Sinai. They were there for a year, and God taught them and gave them new laws and a new identity as a people. They're promised land people, just as you and I as Christians are promised land people. We've been given a new identity. God's made us new from the inside, regeneration. We're born again. And he wants us to take possession of our salvation. He wants these people to take possession of the promised land. God taught these people in this book of Numbers order and organization and how to be cleansed and how to be separate from the rest of the the filth and the idolatry surrounding these people. And they struggled with that. They struggled with their flesh. They struggled with their desires. They struggled with all of these things. They murmured, they complained, they rebelled. They failed God. God wanted them to walk by faith and they failed. They walked by sight instead. And at that first generation, that whole first generation, because of their unbelief, they died in the wilderness. The rest of them, for 38 years, they began to wander around and around and around. Lots of motion, lots of movement, but very, very little progress. I think... There's something to be said about the Christian and his or her life where you're, you're, you're moving, you're, do, you're doing a lot you know, physically, but you're not really making progress spiritually. That whole nation of unbelief had to die before God would allow them to come into the promised land. So now this new nation, they've learned a little. They're, they're still infantile in their walking by faith, but they've learned a little. They're now right on the edge 
They have challenges. They're on the threshold. They're about to go into the promised land. And again, don't be a child like these children of, of Israel. Don't, don't be a Christian that struggles for years and years with your faith. Walk by faith. Be obedient like Zelophead's daughters. I think that's why we end the chapter this way. We're to walk by faith and walk in obedience. Lay aside your sins. Stop doing those things that, that are offensive to God and live holy and righteous before him. God had a plan for each of his children. God has a plan for you, and he's going to bring you to that promised land. He's got a purpose for your life. I just thought about Tim standing today in front of the Planned Parenthood with a sign that says pray. He's not violently protesting. He's not screaming at people. He's making an appeal to save a life. And it was 9.30. I don't know, maybe they saved a lot more than two. I'm excited to hear now. His life has made a difference because he's been in obedience to the Lord. He's not a pastor. He's just a member of a church that could do something, organizing this local effort for 40 days for life, trusting the Lord, obeying God's word, being like Zelophia's daughters who just obeyed, marrying within the tribe and doing obediently what God wants. Sadly, a lot of Christians, they live in the wilderness, and I see it. I've lived myself in the wilderness. You're right on the threshold. You can see the finish line. You, you know what it takes to do it, but you just don't do it. Stubbornness, pride, I don't know. Christian, it's time to just let go and let God. Trust him. Walk by faith. Honor his word. Obey his promises and trust his promises. And instead of being in the wilderness, he'll deliver you into the promised land. God's got a brand new priest. Aaron died. He couldn't go in because he wasn't faithful. So his son, Eliezer, is now the, the priest. God has a new leader. Moses disobeyed God, showed anger and struck the rock wasn't allowed to go in because of his disobedience. And now there's a brand new leader. His name is Joshua. And that's where we're going to go in a few weeks. I'll be back in a few weeks on Wednesday night, and we're going to start a new study. And we're going to do this all over again. We're going to worship the Lord on Wednesday night. Philip and, and the worship team are going to lead us, and we're going to jump into the book of Joshua. And we're going to go across that Jordan, and we're going to enter into the land. Are you excited? I am. I want to get there. I can see it already. So I hope that you'll join us as we study, as we go through that. It's going to be great. Lord, thank you for the study through this wonderful Old Testament book. Father, I love your word, and I so love the Old Testament. All the precepts you built in your word in the Old Testament that, that lay the foundation for the new, I pray, God, that these people would have hunger and desire to study your word, to come back and, and, and study Joshua with us. And Father, bless these people, your children. I know that some of them struggle. We all do. Help them to be like Zelophead's daughters, obedient, 
when they heard the voice of the Lord. Help them, Lord, to conquer those things in their life that so easily trip them up and lead them, Lord, to that promised land where you, Lord, will use them for much fruit in ministry. And Lord, we, we ask your blessing on the 40 Days for Life event tomorrow and the next day. Help me, Lord, to get out there for an hour or two just to walk the line and pray. Help us as a church, Lord, to pray to end this murderous activity that happens around us. Help us, Lord, not to turn our face away, but to stand up. I love you, Lord, and I love your word, and I thank you for these people tonight. Bless them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.